Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You are about to hear one of the highlight sessions of the 2021 event, which featured more than 150 storytellers and was explored through our theme, Mulat Sarira, self-reflection. So please settle in and let the magic of our 18th year continue. We reevaluate and reconnect. So the book that we're discussing today couldn't really be more well-placed, I think, to help us get our bearings when we feel at sea. Um, and many of you might find some of the things we're talking about this afternoon familiar. So I really encourage you to put a pin in that. There will be time for questions a little bit later on. And it's always nice if you have those framed um, clearly before we get to them because it's a, a very quick session. Uh, the time goes so quickly. Desi Anwar is a national journalist in Indonesia, a television anchor and a writer based in Jakarta. She's the author of several books, including The Art of Solitude, which is about navigating a peaceful path, both in ourselves and the environment we cultivate around us to bring meaning to our lives. And I would love to welcome Desi now. Hello. Hi, Julian. Oh, can hello. Can you see me? <laughs> yes, here. I can. Hi, and um, hi everybody in Perth and also in Bali. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry to hear that Julia is not well. I'm actually, you know, I was looking forward to meeting her, but I wish her all the best and I hope she recovers very soon. But anyway, it's a very, very great privilege for me to be here with you all. And um, it's too bad we can't all meet in Bali, but Fortunately, we do have the technology to get together, to stay connected, even when the world makes it impossible for us to get together. Well, this is so exciting to have you with us, Desi, and I, I, uh, we wish it were in person as well, and we look forward to when um, it can be again. Um, it feels very uh, uh, close to our topic to ask you what the world looks like where you are at the moment. Can you can you talk us through a little bit of, of what's been happening in Indonesia and, and what the world looks like for you right now? Well, the, fortunately, the last um, few weeks, we are seeing a downward trend, the levelling off of the COVID-19. and But we did see a you know, exponential spike in the months of June and July when the Delta variant came in. And uh, I'm sure uh, you all experienced the same thing in Australia. So we were averaging around, you know, uh, five, 6,000 cases per day. And at some point towards the end of June and the beginning of July, it even went up as high as 50,000 cases a day. So we were on sort of emergency uh, lockdown, uh, so to speak. And um, it was a terrible time for us, of course, um, on a personal level as well. I've you know, had friends, colleagues getting the, the virus and uh, you know, lost a couple of friends and uh, colleagues as well. So it's been... It's been sort of a quite a traumatic um, situation for all of us here in Indonesia. And, but in a way, because we've had this 
COVID for over a year and a half now. There's also the feeling of some kind of, you know, self-isolation fatigue. And that was what was also causing the big spike because people were kind of, you know, have to go out and make a living and it's getting a little bit difficult to just, you know, stay away, whether from the office or from work or from your friends. So, yeah, that was um, partly the reason why the numbers uh, spiked. But now it's fortunately it's getting better. But I think we still have to be very careful with all the new variants coming in because we don't want to see a third wave because Indonesia has been impacted, not just health wise, but also economically. Obviously, a lot of people have lost their um, jobs and their income or they've been um, you know, have their activities reduced. And in Bali, uh, I happen to be uh, in Bali, they're not in Ubud. You can really feel that an island that really relies on visitors, relies on tourism, relies on uh, service industry. Uh, the impact uh, has been very, very palpable. So let's hope <laughs> that we will see light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, the key is to get everybody vaccinated. At the moment, we're not even at the 50% yet, but. Um, you know, because that is the key also for the country to start opening up. And I understand that, um, you know, foreigners coming into Indonesia, it's still very much a, a restricted um, situation at the moment. So uh, that's also um, something that we look forward to seeing easing soon. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you know, 14th of October, we may see some kind of opening up of the borders. Oh, Desi, we so look forward to uh, when we can travel to your beautiful country again. There's such a close relationship, I think, particularly with Western Australia and Bali, given our proximity and our our history. It is a really interesting time to be uh, writing about solitude and and solitude as an art. I I notice uh, in your introduction you discuss the you, uh, the pandemic and you discuss um, isolation. But I wonder when you when you um, wrote the book, what what prompted it? Had you started it before the pandemic hit? Actually, no. I was just um, I just finished my book previous to this one, which is called Offline, and it's basically just you know I was musing about our extreme dependence on technology. And this is already before the pandemic. And the pandemic has actually increased our dependence on technology. We do everything online now. We do everything uh, through internet connection. We shop, we order our food, we basically communicate through technology as we are doing now. And the pandemic forces us to even increase our dependence. And uh, if I may, can I just uh, read a little bit like a a paragraph of um, my introduction to solitude so you can see what sort of prompted me to sit down and write it, which I wrote exactly during the pandemic time because I did did a lot of work from home. (laughs) And so I was left with a lot of time in my hands, but also I thought it was a good time for me to do my own uh, self-reflection. So, Gillian, may I? I would love you to, Desi. Thank you. Okay. Um, So, how to deal with these moments when we're alone? 
even when we have no desire to be on our own. What do we do with ourselves? How do we spend our time? And what are the thoughts that come into our heads? How, we do, how do we deal with these thoughts? I try to look at this time, the pandemic time, as a gift, both a gift of time itself and a gift of the self. After all, isn't time something that we always feel lacking in? A precious commodity that we often run out of. The sand that inevitably slips through our fingers even as we try to grasp it. And as to the self, lost in our activities and everyday busyness, lost in our roles to be something for other people, whether as a student, an employee, a partner, or whatever part we play in society, suddenly we find ourselves confronted with it. Being alone forces us to confront ourselves, to know who we are, and to understand how we operate and make sense of our lives and the world we live in. We may not like what we find or be comfortable with what we see, but we realize that ultimately the self is something we cannot run away from. And since we cannot get on the plane and explore the world yet, perhaps we might as well use this opportunity to embark on an inward journey to discover and understand this self. So that basically sums up, you know, uh, what got me thinking. <laughs> Plus, you Did know, you write it, Desi, with an audience in mind or was it part of a, a, a personal journey for you? It's, um, for me, my writing has always been part of my own personal journey. It's... Um, it's a, some form of uh, emotional and mental therapy, if you like, because, I mean, in, in my line of work, I, I ask a lot of questions. You know, I interview people and I ask and try to understand what's going on around us, uh, what's happening in the world, why is this like this? But there is one thing that is always a constant, is I'm always asking about myself, um, and it, that's always been a constant since I was small. I was always, you know, I had the, always the big questions in my head, like who am I really and what am I doing in this world and where is it going to and what's the significance of it, you know. Sort of, it sounds philosophical, but I think I feel that if I don't understand myself to begin, to begin with and how I operate and how I respond to things, I won't be able to really understand not just other people, but what is actually going on around me. And so um, it's very much a part of me trying to understand myself better, really, and why I, you know, why does this thing bother me? And what happens if we were all completely dependent on technology, for example, or, you know, what is the, why am I not comfortable with loneliness? What is it that makes me always seeking other people's company, for example? So these are just basic, you know, natural curiosity as a journalist, I suppose. There are some very deep questions as well that you look at in the art of solitude. So can I just ask you to pick apart um, that idea a, a, a little bit for us, Desi, about, about solitude. You've described yourself um, and... I read in the book as well some just beautiful memories you have of being a child and really liking your own company. Um, how, do you, how do you view solitude? And when you refer to it as an art, what, what do you mean by that? 
Okay. Well, it's a good point that um, you mentioned about you know uh, the childhood experience because I think all of us we still carry that child within us, and uh, uh, even though we you know we get older, but we are still that child that we were. And I think um, the kind of uh, childhood I had was uh, my parents were qu quite sort of uh, offhand. They're not sort of helicopter parents, uh, so to speak. And I remember I used to suffer from car sickness when I was very small. And um, when you know, my parents would say, let's go on a picnic. And we would go, yay, let's go on a picnic. Everybody gets into the car. And uh, as soon as the car started and we kind of like five minutes uh, traveling, I started feeling this nausea coming up. And I said to, you know, my mother, can you please open the window or, you know, I need to throw up. And she kind of looked at me through the rear uh, view mirror and kind of just turn the car back and everybody said well where are you going you know and she basically drove us back home and then she opened the door and said and then you know just you know let me out and so I could throw up and as I was I went out to throw up she just closed the car and they drove off <laughs> Seriously, I mean, you know, with, with you know, so, so many kids, and I could just see them sort of waving on the back of this black beetle because you, you know, she had this black beetle that she had, and I couldn't believe it. And you know, I was, I think, about five or six, and I couldn't believe it that I was left alone, and there was nobody at home because everybody's gone on this picnic, and I couldn't believe that she did that to me, and everybody was like you know, not saying, hey, you know, we've left her. So I was literally left alone in the house. And of course, I kind of, you know, bawled my eyes out. And, you know, why do they, why are they doing this to me? And, um, you know, and then I, I find that after a while, just crying and feeling sorry for myself didn't help. So I just started, okay, well, I'm going to play on my own. So I was just created stories. And Ten hours later, when they all came back, you know, they were like, "Yeah, you got left behind," you know, and they were telling stories, trying to make me jealous. And then I, and then I just said to them, "You know what? I was really glad I finally I could have time to myself. You know, I didn't need you a lot to <laughs> to have fun with." So it was basically a coping <laughs> a coping mechanism for me. This, um, so I kind of developed that, you know, the art of solitude where. If I can't enjoy myself being on my own, you know, how can I impose myself on other people? So I'm quite happy to, you know, I, I can be alone without feeling lonely. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Has that helped? Have you had times in your life when you have felt lonely as opposed to okay about, about well, um, being on your own? Yes, I mean, of course, especially in the, during those times when you form relationships, you fall in love, and then, you know, when you feel that you're not being paid attention to, you feel that, you know, how come I'm, you know, my needs are not being met, or how come, but I think it's more to do with, um, that's why I think writing is a good way, uh, a good form of therapy, because you put those feelings and those emotions 
out there for your own sort of understanding. So what is happening with me? Why do I feel fear of being abandoned? Because that's what also happened to me. You see, one day my, well, my father went off to England and there was uh, my mother and then there was my uh, sister at home. And then my mother, one day it kind of, you know, said, well, I'm taking your sister to London and they just took off. So I was abandoned. I was left alone with, you know, with some other relatives, but I didn't have any parents. And my other sister was shipped off to West Sumatra. So I was literally, as a 10-year-old, I was literally abandoned. I felt that what if something happens to me, who is going to be responsible for me? And I find myself in a position where the things that I do, only I can answer for it. I have to be responsible. And it's it's quite a shock to be abandoned and you don't have any you know, parents who tell you to go to bed on time or to do your homework or you have siblings to kind of, you know, as I was the youngest, to sort of bully you and put you in your place. I mean, I was on... I was, you know, I could stay up all night. I could go to bed without brushing my teeth. I could play all day. So it was a real, a powerful feeling. And after the initial shock, I find that actually I enjoyed it very much. Taking my own little life, you know, on my own. And so that in the future, when I grew up and then say my parents or my mother would try to suggest something that I should do this instead of that or pretending to give me advice and I would just look at her and then said you know what capacity are you giving me advice for you have absolutely you know no authority in that direction I was left to fend for myself so that was kind of my background because she also left for the United States when I was four for about a year and a half which of course is that when you're that age it's quite um, an experience to live without having your you know, mother around as a constant. I have to tell you, Desi, we, we have a habit in Australia. Um, I'm not sure how, if you've spent any time here or how familiar you are, but you know, when we hear a story that we feel um, empathy and we're, we're shocked, we tend to laugh. If you can hear the room ringing with mirth at these, <laughs> these <generally laughs> personal stories, I just I know. My, my mother You're was all like, horrible. <laughs> what is wrong with you, mum? I would say. She goes like, you know, well, it's your life. You know, I'm not going to live it for you, you know. So. Well, but it's an interesting go. perspective that you that you you bring to it because I mean you've described yourself as a very curious person. You're obviously a very um, uh, independent person, and and you've you've had to be. I think so many of us search for uh, meaning and purpose. I'm I'm interested in in your approach. How you have. Um, gone from that uh, little girl on, left in the house on your own to um, this very experienced, well-established journalist who, um, who, who really takes introspection but 
um, you see outside yourself so well uh, as well. It's a very rambly question. But what I'm asking is what is your approach for the, to the search for meaning in life? Well, I think um, it's something that we can only have when we give time to ourselves to think about these things. And the problem with life is just that you're so constantly busy, you know, busy with whether it's going to school, doing your homeworks and trying to be, uh, you know, successful or trying to get a job and earning a living, that the one thing that we often forget is ourselves. And um, and I think my this, the beginning of my search and asking those fundamental questions was actually I was I was quite young. It was I remember waking up, you know, I sort of been sort of despite <laughs> my occasional ab occasional abandonment by my uh, parents, being quite you know a happy go lucky child. You know, children have natural curiosity, and I was being I moved around a lot, so there were always new things for me to learn and to experience. But I remember waking up on my 13th birthday and, you know, it's a big deal when you've been, uh, you know, you're up to your 12, you don't have a teen at the end of it, right? So when you suddenly have a 13 and suddenly it's like the whole world has shifted, you are now part of this teenager phase. I remember waking up and I'm 13 today and I was overwhelmed by this, sort of like as if a dark cloud kind of enveloped me. And I was like 13. And that's when it hit me, you know, who, who am I? And why, why do I have to grow old? And why, you know, suddenly all these questions about the, as a human being, you know, so why am I here? How come I'm not my sister? How come, uh, you know, uh, I have this experience and where is it all going? And suddenly, I think for the first time, I felt the shadow or the understanding of time passing and this feeling of that at the end of the day, when we're being born, it's basically if you're not born, you'll never die. But it's the, the tragedy of the fact that you're born, that you, <laughs> you will die. I mean, it sounds like I'm like really depressing, <laughs> you know, <laughs> person. But I know but it's just, it's just these, these kinds of things that have always been um, a red thread, so to speak, uh, in my life that got me to be very curious and I still am I, I still haven't found you know the answers I, I don't know what, what what are we doing and why it is until now so it's not it's not something that has clear answers but I think these are the important questions that we do need to find uh, at least try to find answers for ourselves or at the very least a way for us to cope with reality or way to uh, for us to cope with the emotions of living you know because when we go through life we have all different emotions right we feel disappointment we feel um I mean half the time most of the time I feel very insecure like oh you know people think I know the answer but actually I don't really know anything <laughs> I just pretend as if I know something but really you know don't look at me for answers that kind of thing so that's always been um, a constant which I think it's important 
uh, as a human being to understand what being a human being is all about. You have some very interesting thoughts on on death, uh, Desi, that you discuss in the art of, of solitude, almost as though life is a preparation for what happens after death. So there's a, there's questions in there about um, about faith, but can I just ask you to expand a bit on your on your thoughts about that particular stage of our life? Because I think it's something that we often find very uncomfortable, even though it's an inevitability to mm-hmm. think about and talk about. Well, I, I think it's interesting about uh, faith and belief, and I do envy people who have a source that can give them a comfort of, you know, I live because that this is the purpose of life, and when I die, this is what's going to happen. And they, they, or the answer is already there because there is a single source or you know, several sources for it, for example, that becomes... Uh, life raft that you hold on to. And I envy that kind of, yeah, I know, I'm not worried. <laughs> but I, for me, the questions are, are always there. I'm not so much um, enticed by the um, certainty as to kind of, yeah, but is it? Is it really so? Um, because I feel that you know nothing is really black and white. I mean, life having a life in itself. Um, I don't know why you know we humans are given a life on this planet. I mean, it's you know there's billions of other planets. For example, sorry, Jill, these are the kind of things that sometimes you know maybe watching too much Netflix. And, you know, and, <laughs> it's way too much time on my hand that I start thinking of these things. But it's it's great if you have that kind of certainty in beliefs. Oh, this is I'm I'm not worried. That way you can just get on with the with the business of living. But I always try to look beyond of what is it? You know, why are humans? Why are we here really? And why have we sort of gone through this evolution? where, you know, at some point we were a minor part of the planet where we were sort of hunted as a species to a species that now really, if we talk about viruses, we are the human beings, are we are the virus of this planet. You know, we've multiplied exponentially. We have kind of, you know, if you look at the number of um, lions or whatever it's, uh, of wild animals out there and the number of humans that populate this earth, which is over 7 billion, I, I'm doing all sorts of, you know, unintended consequences to the planet. And I start thinking, well, uh, I think we start to look beyond our own fear of, you know, mortality to the reason why we have evolved to the stage of where we are at the moment. Um, well, I don't know if I'm making any sense, but um, I'm sorry, sorry, Desi. I've um, I'm not sure if anyone can fix my screen here who's technical and running around. But otherwise, I'm just going to move my chair a little bit because I can't. I've lost your picture, Desi, and I'm I'm, I'm still like here. I'm can just, you see me? I can see you up there. 
So I'm just going to sit back here a bit, if you don't mind, so that I can see her. Otherwise, it just all feels a bit weird. Um, can you still see me, Desi? Yes, I can see Fabulous. you. Fabulous. I feel That's like I'm amazing. looking down on, on you, Gillian, like a, some are kind you, of well, deity. Well, you are, yes. <laughs> like a deity. Yes. And, and I, I wish I, I feel could like see this is a mini person. <laughs> yes, my child. <laughs> I almost want to get on my knees. <laughs> Can, we have a very interesting relationship with machines considering how... Um, um, and I'm interested in you in your reference to humans as, as the virus. We do so much damage, and I think the busier we are, and 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 the more we we develop, the further away from us ourselves and um, and and nature, the environment we get, and the closer we get to um, intelligent machines, which you have quite a lot to say about in your book as well. I wonder if you'd expand. Well. I feel that we as, as humans having this human experience, we, you know, human life is actually very, very short. Uh, the average lifespan is, you know, if you're healthy, well, now with, with a virus, you know, some lives are shorter than others, but it's very rare that you get to live beyond the age of 100. Okay, so there's only a limited amount of time that we as a human are exposed to on this earth. And I feel increasingly that during that short individual time that we have, that we've, we're putting our priorities in the wrong place, uh, so to speak. And, and that includes, you know, the way our society is uh, being, uh, you know, uh, basically it's formed from the way that you know, our, we educate our children and to the way that we operate in a society. I feel increasingly that our priorities are getting really, really wrong because the landmark, you know, the highlights of our life is always about success and doing things and achievements and accumulating things. You know, like when you're, at, when you're at school, it's all about getting the good grade so you can get to a good school and you can get good results, you can get to a good university because if you get to good university, you can get your good job. And then when you get a good job, you can have good salary and that way you can afford your, you know, raise a family or have your car and then, you know, have your house. And if you have your car, you want to have you know, two cars and then you want to have your holidays and then you want to have your things, you know. So these are what I feel that we see as achievements and countries always measure the nation's wealth in terms of GDP and growth, if a country is not growing positively, if it's contracting like, you know, we have been the global economy and also Indonesia's economy is contracted, it's like everybody panics. It's like, well, we're not doing the right thing. We're not going in the right direction. But at the, in the meantime, I don't think these milestones that we celebrate, i.e. based on success and achievements, is actually um, re does resonate on us individually and as a species in terms of happiness and peace and contentment, even though fundamentally, I think each one of us, if they ask you, you know, what, what would be... I mean, no one, I don't think people in their deathbed would say, well, what, what are the things that you're regretting most in your life? You said, oh, I regretted not getting that promotion as an accountant or something, right? You said, oh, I regret not having spent time, 
enjoying myself or pursuing my talent or just seeing the world more. So these are the things that we need to shift after this pandemic, I think, is the way, what do we mean by wealth? And Bhutan, they have a very good uh, indicator for what they call happiness. So instead of gross, gross national product or GNP, they have it gross national uh, happiness. So that way you focus more on the wealth of your mental health, which unfortunately is um, one of the um, highest kind of, even more than the virus we're facing at the moment is actually increasing um, mental health problems that we're facing. It's no longer you know, communicable diseases. It's no longer, even now you know, with a virus, you have the double, I mean, it's, it's the, the health of us as a species, young people's health, you know, the, the depression, and for example, feeling of disconnection, feeling of envy, and because you're always, especially with social media, comparing yourself to somebody else. And that creates a sense of lack, a sense of dissatisfaction, a sense that you don't have, and a sense that you're not achieving anything, and a sense of failure. And the worst thing that I feel myself because I, I, I went through it is that really destroys your sense of worth is when you feel that you're, you fail, you know, you feel that you're not contributing or you feel that you're sort of lacking. And, and I think um, this kind of environment we have at the moment is this just feeling of dissatisfaction and so on uh, that we have on the global level. And now we, we feel it. Um, we're not happy with the quality of our air. We're not happy with the quality of our environment. We're not happy with the quality of the economic situation where you have somebody with $200 billion <laughs> valuation and then you have somebody who, you know, dumb, you know, who, dive into dumpsters to get their food you know there's something something wrong in us as a human species how we we organize ourselves and it's actually affecting everything else that's on the planet you know the animals the oceans the rivers and whatever climate change so and I wonder, given your role in um, in the media as a journalist, if you have any thoughts on as you've as you've touched on our relationship um, with the media, um, as particularly our, our young people, I suppose, in social media. What do you think the impact on that of that is on uh, mental health? Oh, it's uh, technology amplifies all of these. Um, what we call, you know, negative things, you know, the, the fears and the feeling of insignificance, the feeling of that you're not doing well compared to others, on like a million times bigger, simply because it just, you know, it just goes out there. And it may be that, you know, when you're little, somebody picks on you at school and you're bullied, it's one or two people that bullies you. But now if it's on social media, you have the whole world bullying you. And that is really, uh, you know, very, very destructive to our emotional and mental health. 
And it's also, uh, if we do something well, for example, you know, and lots of people, you know, do things well, uh, at least that they're happy with for most of the time. But if there's a one little thing <laughs> and then somebody says something about, yeah, but, you know, you're not really that great. Say 99 people say you're fantastic and you just, for some reason, the human brain just focuses on that one person telling you that you're really not that great, are you? And suddenly you become sort of uh, fixated with that, um, with that thought and you start thinking, yeah, maybe he's right. And you, you forget all the other, that, you know, all the things that you've done right. So this is also, I think, um, it's made completely worse by imagine everybody saying that. No wonder uh, young people find that they can't cope. No wonder that they feel that they just want to tune out and unfortunately we end up you know, medicating them so you don't have it. it's this feeling or you, you um, dumb yourself or you just basically block out all these emotions so you can cope. But that's not healthy in the, our addiction also to uh, opioids and medication is, is one of the most salient things that we're seeing in the 21st century. You know, just, I have to start de getting dependent on things to help you cope. Whereas what we should teach ourselves and our children is actually, and this is where education is important, is teach people from a very early age to be resilient. And I think that I owe that to my mother. She puts me in a position where I had to cope. I was given, I wasn't given the choice of a life raft and say, you know, oh, you're going to be fine. So it's like, well, you know, you always get sick when you travel in the car. And darling, nobody likes to, <laughs> to travel with someone who always gets car sick. It's not fun for everybody else to see you, you know, vomit. And that was, that's what she said, you know. So I was forced to have this resiliency and, and I think this is something that needs to be educated. You can't expect people to, okay, you know, deal with your disappointment, but not telling people how to deal with disappointment or rejection or feeling insecure. I'd love to throw it open to questions now if we have any, and I have Desi back down here again, so I can just shuffle. Um, back over here. So if you have a question, raise your hand and we can bring the microphone to you. Um, and if we have any online, we can get to those as well. Uh, if you raise your hand, we can bring the microphone over so that... Oh, great. Hello. Chick, chick, chick. Um, Daisy, oh, we can't see you. Hi. So I'll ask through the chair, I guess. Um, you, of course, come from a very well-known family. So your parents were academics. Uh, you also come from a Minang household where women are in some ways much more prominent than you would expect in a Javanese family. You have a, another very well-known sister, Dewi Anwar, and you have grown up very much as a public figure because I think you were working on television what, in your early 20s? Is that about right? So mm -hmm. at one level, you've had a very 
lonely, you know, you've had obviously been abandoned from time to time, but you've also had a very extraordinarily public life. So I'm just wondering how those two things kind of play together. And you're particularly interested uh, when you said, why am I not my sister? And I did wonder why you and Dewi both became very famous, but in very different ways. Thank you. Izzy. Yes. Um, sorry, who? Can I have the name of? Krishna Sen. Okay, hi. Yes. Um, when you want to Sorry, talk I should about... explain. I should explain. I'm an old friend of your sister's. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we will um, ask you to comment, Desi. <laughs> okay, because um, you seem to know my family quite well. Well, it's it's great, and thank you for um, joining us in this session. Yes, you you're absolutely right. You know, um, because there's there's me who is quite happy, you know, being on my own. But I'm also very comfortable in the in the public setting. And how does that go together? You know, there's some some people say that oh, you're an extrovert or you're you're an introvert, for example. I like to think of myself as an introvert, in that um, I find I get my energy when I'm on my own and when I can sort of reflect and understand. So, what was that all about? And um, just you know, have that group uh, regroup again, but. It doesn't mean when I'm out there, um, I sort of get stage fright or something. Because the way I deal with um, the public and it's that if I start seeing, okay, like 100 people are watching me or, you know, I'm out there and the whole country is watching my program, then, of course, that would give me some kind of you know, ooh, if I make a mistake, I'm going to make a fool of myself. So the, the way I try to deal with it is that I'm human and I'm talking to another human being and I work on the premise that I always try to forgive and be understanding of, say, my friend's mistakes or weaknesses and, and annoyances, you know. But So I try to think, oh, well, that person, I'm sure we'll also try to understand my silliness or my being annoying or my weaknesses. So the camera is actually, I find, a very, very good friend. Um, and most of my career is actually it's me talking <laughs> to the camera. And I find that, you know, it gives me comfort to just look at the camera and the camera is very understanding. They don't kind of criticize me. They don't talk back. They don't come up with sarcastic comments. So that, you know, if I find myself more, much more comfortable talking to camera than in a real you know, party situation, for example, it's, it's um, yeah, partly because of that. But, you know, Thanks. some people get their energy from being, uh, you know, with a group, large group of people, and they find that when they're on their own, they feel like they're missing out or something. But I think I'm the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have time for one more question. Thank you, Leslie. Um, yeah. Um, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating session. Um, 
given your mother's attitude and your having to be very resilient, obviously from an early age, and your very um, massive public profile, how has that impacted on your capacity to become close to other people and let them into your life and have those sort of interdependent women relationships? Yeah, that's, um, that's a great question because I felt with you know, growing up, um, you know, how your world is basically your parents and the things that you have around you and that um, and, and the school that you go to, uh, for example. I think you mentioned that um, I was, uh, I come from a West Sumatran families that is a Minang and we're very matrilineal so women have a very a respected position in society because it's the women that can pass on the property the inheritance it's it's not the men and um, I have two other sisters and my mother her, basically there are three uh, women in the family and I think that's really influenced the way I view the world, uh, which is different. For example, if the value, and in many societies, you know, uh, and even in, in, in most societies, that uh, female, the women are valued a little bit less than the male, but in our family, it's my father's always outnumbered. <laughs> and, you know, he was, he, he always lost. He always lost the argument. And, of course, when I went to England, I went to a girls' school. So I was fortunate in the sense that we didn't have to compete for the attention of boys in order to feel that we're the most, you know, popular, uh, for example. So we had to, we were forced to compete on the academic uh, level, but um, my sense of because I'm I'm naturally interested in another person, and I always try to understand them. And I think this one of the main reasons is because I'm always trying to understand myself and learn how people cope with things, cope with the challenges in their lives and cope with how they deal with difficult situations. And I find listening to them very instructive. And, and for me, it also guides me in how I write. It's trying to understand our situation, but also trying to what, what it is that we do when we communicate. And I think this is the problem with technology now. We communicate a lot. And yet we don't do it in order to understand each other, in order to have empathy for one another, because we have this gadget that basically acts as a barrier. And we don't communicate with each other anymore. We don't use our ears to listen. We don't use our eyes to really see what the other person's expression is. It's all about just tweeting and updating and basically putting it out there what you have in your head without using your whole apparatus and your tool as a human being to communicate which is um, what I try to do also whenever I interview my subject 
is this person is a human being, I'm a human being, and let's really try to understand each other on that basic human level. And when you do that, I think the conversation is very generative and we get, uh, you know, a much more sort of satisfactory uh, relationship or communication going on. And the quality of information is also much more interesting. I think we're sort of, yeah, losing that a little bit. Desi, I we are out of time. I'm I'm um, sorry. It's been a fascinating conversation, and I and a privilege to have you with us, sharing some of your stories. Thank you so much. Could I ask everyone, please, to thank Desi Anwar? Thank you very much, Gillian, for having me, and thank you for being such a wonderful audience. We hope to see you in person sometime soon, Desi. All the best and to all of um, Indonesia. Thank you. Thank Um, you to the festival. The Art of Solitude is the book, Desi Anwar, our guest. I will see you in uh, a little while with our next uh, session, Women of Rage. Thank you very much for coming along to this one. Have a fabulous afternoon. Bye-bye.